On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we catch up with Emily, a former Survivor guest, about unhealthy versus healthy fears, trauma, children mimicking narcissistic traits, doing the work, and the experience of being on the show. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and today you're going to hear a story. It's a return story. We have someone who was on our show once before. It was Emily, and Emily was from January 11th, 2021. If people want to go take a listen to that. And we recorded this episode a long time ago, and we're finally putting it out now for everyone to hear. And it's a really interesting uh, conversation about what she had to deal with after uh, her experience on the show. We discussed the experience on the show as well. So if you want to be a guest like Emily was in January of 2021, January 11th, 2021, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There, read all the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send in your stories. We are always looking for stories, so please do send them in. And besides that, I guess a little bit of trigger warning, there's a stalking discussed in this episode that might be very triggering for you. So a big trigger warning there. We do mention uh, intimate partner violence briefly. There's no graphic description of it. We just mention it. So that's in there as well. And I guess that's it right there. So now without further ado, here is my episode, the return episode with... Emily. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have the return of Emily. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I am good. And if you don't remember Emily, go tune in to our January 11th, 2021 episode with Emily. We talked about her covert, grandiose. Uh, X. Um, we talked about abuse escalation phases, power plays, and much uh, more. Sleep deprivation, cult. Uh, there was intimate partner violence involved, and you know her story. Everything just escalated and escalated and escalated. And you know today we're going to talk about uh, a bunch of things. You know Emily was not able to get to all the details of of what happened. And uh, some scary stuff, you know, because you don't know what is you're supposed to be afraid of and what you are supposed to not let go. But, you know, you're in the trauma kind of phase. So we're going to discuss these things. We're going to discuss your kids. We're going to discuss the aftermath of of the show and uh, your friends listening to the show and what they thought about it and and everything uh, like that. So. Well, just thank you for for being here with me, Emily, and reaching out uh, when we started to uh, bring people back. So, um, anyway, sure. without further ado, oh, you're welcome. Uh, the floor again is now yours. 
tell us where, where should we begin? Oh, well, um, so there were, yeah, there were definitely some parts. You and I talked for what, four hours? <laughs> and obviously <laughs> nobody wants to listen to that for four hours. That's a lot of commitment. Um, I think you edited it down to two, which you're a champion. Because I, you think, really I think yours was the too. longest uh, mm-hmm. recording I ever did. And that edit took me uh, a good amount of time to edit. But yeah. you know what? We were in a lockdown here. I don't right. know if we were in lockdown yet, but it was at least it was January. Mm-hmm. I had time on my hands. Right. So Well, that brings me to overcommunication. <laughs> so so let's talk about lockdown for you and your, um, I guess, uh mm-hmm. year in lockdown and dealing with all of this. Yeah. I mean, I work from home and I am an extrovert. Uh so normally I would try to get out and about and do things, but obviously during the pandemic. And having a second grader who needed to do at-home school, I've been tethered to my house and also a toddler. Um, And that did not do well for my psyche, just because I need people. Um, And I've always been that way. You know, the isolation of what I went through, I still had friends during that time. And I would get out. I didn't tell them what was going on, but I still had people, you know, that I could get out and go on a walk or grab a coffee or whatever with them. And so I think during this time, it caused a lot of, I don't want to say panic, but some of my startle reflexes came back. Um, I used to be really, really bad at sudden loud noises. Like um, I was on a date once uh, and they did a gong right in front of me and I didn't, it was like a birthday gong and I didn't know that was happening. And I just broke down in tears because it just scared me, you know, and that's awkward. You're at a restaurant, like (laughs) At least the weirdo crying, you know, it's like nothing happened. It was actually a gong for my birthday. So then it's really <laughs> no attention. Anyway, um, but some of those things that, you know, you really don't want them to have that control over you. And it can be frustrating, but it's part of having post-traumatic stress. And it's something that I've had to be gentle with myself on and just try to do something healthy for my, you know, when those feelings come up take a rest, read something, listen to a podcast, do something for me, which is hard to do when you have two kids and two clients and <laughs> are working from home. But it's been important. And I'm sure there's been other people who've had some of those feelings, you know, crop back up during this time, I'd imagine. And, you know, I guess one of the big things for you when, you know, your ex was out of the picture and, you know, you're living in, I forget what state you're in, but you hear, you know, you hear rumors that he might be around. Yeah. Um, so, so I was actually, yeah. So, so, actually so just kind of explain um, what happened there and, you know, what is a healthy fear and what is an unhealthy fear and how do you figure that out? Because there's a lot of people who are going to listen to this who have this fear. Um, I was thinking one specific person, really, who I've been in contact with a lot lately. Um, it's a it's a really big fear um, thinking that that person could be in the neighborhood. So how did you deal right. with all of that? Um, it was a lot because I was pregnant. Um, I'm remarried now and I was pregnant with, which pregnancy itself was kind of... Um, triggering for me because that's when everything in my relationship amped up was pregnancy. And so 
it felt redemptive to be able to do it again with someone healthy, you know, someone who was kind to me and a good spouse and a good partner. But it also, I had a lot of nightmares during my pregnancy anyway. Um, and I was working in re- retail before I got my job from home. And I got a call from his sister that he from, had left. From your, from your ex's sister. My ex's yeah. sister that he had left parents' house with intent of coming across the country 3,000 miles to try to find us. And I felt like throwing up because it had been, I hadn't heard anything about him or from him. I knew he was at his parents' house, which helped because they communicated with me some. And so it just felt like I sort of had eyes on him, um, even though we didn't communicate a lot because that was just complicated. Um, And so, you know, my stomach sank. I'm also trying to keep my blood pressure down because I'm pregnant and I was eight months pregnant. So, you know, pretty close to having my kiddo and I had to go to the courts and do a temporary restraining order. Um, I, I got a call from the police because I had called them and said, you know, what do I need to do? Is there anything that like you guys need from me? Can you do more drive-bys of my house? Like he hasn't been in this area. I don't know how much information he has. And the guy said, oh, actually I talked to him. I'm like, what? Uh, why? And he said, oh, he thought he saw you at a gas station. And he said he was praying and then you appeared. I'm like, yeah, I was not, I was 45 minutes away. Like that was not me. And he said, well, he followed that car and he, he called us to let us know so that if you called that we would already know. But he, he, in two minutes, they already had him on their radar as far as some of the crazy things he was saying and different, you know, threats being made. But I did know he had our address, which was a little nerve wracking. But he never came to our house. We put up trail cameras. He never came because the whole point, I mean, not everyone's this way, but my ex is, he's all talk. But it's like, it doesn't make sense to drive all the way across the country. And then he was trying to find us at random churches. And I'm like, uh, we live in the South. If you just try to find us at church, you could go to church every day for like 17 years and never go to the same church twice. And never find us. Like, there's so many churches. It's just, it's very strange. It doesn't, you know, make a lot of sense. But that was, that was nerve-wracking for sure. And they could never serve him with a restraining order because he was in his car. So when you don't have an address, you know, this is one thing with the system that just, it's so bothersome to me is anytime you file anything, you have to relive everything. You have to put as many details as possible. You have to... You know, I thought he was coming after our daughter, of course, and they wanted me to put her school address on there. And I'm like, isn't he going to get a copy of those? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'm not giving him a map. Like, why would I do that? That makes no sense. They're like, oh, I guess, you know, ask the judge if you can leave that off. I had to go, you know, to her preschool and give them his picture. I had to tell our church, he can, you know, make sure you check the number of my child. He, this person cannot, you know, I mean, it's, embarrassing because a lot of those people didn't even know, you know, I'm in a new state. I'm across the country from when all this happened. But it's like, you have to relive all that. The burden of proof is on you in the court. You know, I'm up in the criminal court on the witness stand, which I've never done that. I was like, what is happening? You know, and it's just, you know, and they, he said, you know, I'll put it into, but it never got served. So I had to go three weeks in a row and then they threw it out because they couldn't find him. But he made, you know, threats at a local church and we had a cop show up on our doorstep and kind of talk to us about what was going on. So they were very nice and I felt taken care of. But yeah, it was it was not great. Um, it was not great for my husband because he didn't 
he doesn't know. I mean, he wasn't there, obviously. I didn't know him until years later. And so, yeah, we delivered our baby. And it was by that point, I had kind of heard that he had gone. He'd sent some pictures from somewhere else, which I'm like, you know, I could say I'm in Africa and send you a picture. It doesn't mean I am. You kind of have to still, I would see his car lots of places and always do that double take. And that's where, you know, you and I were talking about it before we started, but you you don't want to live in fear. You don't want them to have that control, but you have to be smart. You have to protect your family and yourself. I know my kids need me. I know, you know, I deserve this chapter with them and with my husband. And I don't want them to be around that kind of trauma and chaos. And it's my job to kind of keep them from that if possible without emotionally just stuffing everything because that's not healthy either. So you have to find that balance, which, you know, support groups are great for that because you can kind of vent there without carrying it around all day in yourself, right? And when you found out that he had your address, where would he have gotten that address from? You know, I was talking to a friend of mine that day and she said, let me check something out. And she called me back and she just went on white pages and paid like $9.99 and it had a picture of my dang house on there. It had my maiden name, my married name, people associated with me. It's not hard if you pay bills and are a responsible adult. I tried really hard. I would never, you know, I would, um, my, any social media is like super duper private, like to the point of insanity, which it has to be. And I would never do anything that had any sort of license plate or any restaurant that's specific to my area. You know, if it was a chain, who the heck cares? But like things that were very, I was very careful about that stuff. But in this day and age, unless you literally go into witness protection, I'm not sure that you can completely go off grid, you know? I mean, I didn't even keep my, I never changed my name the first time because he had a pseudonym anyway. So it's kind of like, why would I do that? But this time when I got married, I changed my name. I couldn't wait to change it. And I dropped my maiden name, even though I loved it because I figured that would help this situation. And it doesn't really matter because they'll still, it'll still, you know, you've got a history, got adult things happening that are linked to you. So, and were you at a certain point where you were worrying uh, all the time and did you have to uh, pull yourself back uh, from that? Oh, yeah. I had a lot of um, daydream nightmares. You know what I mean? Where you're like playing out scenarios. And I, I was working at a camera shop and I had this vision of like, what would I do if he drove by? Like I picture myself like ducking under the counter and like yeah, I worked with all guys and like would they you know what would what would happen in that scenario or like what would we do if he showed up at the house I think he'd be scared of my husband because he's four inches taller and just like a stronger dude and maybe that's what happened maybe he saw him maybe I don't know it's hard to say um it just seems pointless to drive all the way here not see your kid not confront you know because he told people at this church that we weren't really we weren't really divorced because he never signed, which we are legally divorced and we have been for six and a half, seven years because even if you refuse to sign, eventually it goes into, <laughs> you know, I mean, everything's legal. I did it all the right way. So it's just interesting. Like, I think he's just told himself that narrative mm-hmm. so much. It's become his truth. But, you know, he's like, I'm here for my wife. And that showed me that 
you know, to his parents who made it all about our child, he could edit that that portion of it out because I'm sure they would have tried to talk him down from that and said, you know, this is the facts. You're divorced. She's moved on, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But we didn't say that to them because I think he knew there'd be a reaction. He just said that to people that were here. But I mean, there was a church here that he yelled at some guy that took him out to lunch and yelled at him for an hour. And the guy's like, this is so weird. You know, I just met this person, took him to lunch and he's like laying into me and he called the police. So like he, he, he can't, he thinks his own ship, you know, and that's what I just have to remember is I don't have to do anything. He does it to himself, but I'm a doer. So it's hard for me to have that mentality, especially when it comes to my kids, my family, and I was still pregnant and you know, so that month was was really, really difficult emotionally. Um, I just wasn't sure how it was going to play out. Um, I thought something, I thought there would be some sort of altercation. And I always picture him just walking up to me as if nothing has happened. Like, hey, because I think that's what he would do. And then he would be like, why are you freaking out? Because I think he just has told himself all these other things through the years. Um, and he's the victim, right? You know, I took his kid away from him and... I took his wife away from him because I'm his wife still, or whatever, you know, whatever that might be that he convinced himself of. But I did get word he's way back on the West Coast. So that's good. Telling everyone he's a pastor. Pretty sure he's not. (laughs) So, you know, you now have two children. Yeah. And you are, you know, there's sometimes, you know, with children, they are act out in childlike ways but at the Mm -hmm. same time that can be triggering because even though they don't mean what they're doing you still get reminded of the abuse from someone who did know what they were doing so how have you been able to maneuver yourself through that still love your children and um still stay um i'm gonna say you know or at least keep your trauma at bay Right. Um, I think talking about it is key. You know, my spouse and I will talk about parenting and different strategies. And obviously I have my girlfriends through college are all parents. And so I'll just, you know, we have an annual girls weekend when we get together and it's really helpful to kind of chat through like, because they haven't been through abuse. Does parenting ever feel like to you? You know, what does that look like? How do you deal with those feelings? I think at the height of, you know, when your child's doing something ridiculous, which they will all do and illogical and, you know, highly emotional without really knowing how to express themselves. If you need to take a moment, pick the moment because that's better than doing something you'll regret or saying something you'll regret to your child who is so vulnerable, right? And I do have compassion for my children, no matter how ridiculous they're being, because they need me to have that for them. And I remember saying to my ex at one point, it is so bizarre to me that I need protection from the person who should be protecting me because that's what you look to. You don't, you know, it's not like I need you to protect me, but you should want to as a spouse, a partner, you know, a parent, whatever. And it was like, this is just blows my mind that I'm needing protection from you, not, you know, it's just so strange. And so I don't ever want my children to feel that they can't just, you know, figure out those emotions that I will help them navigate it. But I do try to reframe things. And then if I need, you know, I need some me time, 
I try to take it. It's been very difficult in this chapter of life, but next year they'll be back in school, start preschool, that kind of thing. But it can feel like the cycle of abuse for sure. Can you explain first the reframing and then also explain how it can also be a cycle of abuse? Sure. Um, you know, anyone that's been through an abusive situation knows that there's a honeymoon period after abuse and then it builds up again and you're, you know, the tension building and you're on eggshells and you're waiting for the shoe to drop because it inevitably will. And then the next day they love you more than they've ever loved you and they can't imagine why they would ever do that. And why would, you know, they're just all of the things. Well, children can tend to be very extreme in their emotions. You know, they're not, they're, they're not narcissists, but they are self-focused and those are very similar, right? They just, you know, they're, they don't think about things on the outside because they haven't experienced them yet. They have experienced a small little world that centers around them. So why in the world would they not think that's just how it is? Um, but I think sometimes when, you know, especially my older one who does have warmed opinions about everything and she is going to be president of the debate team or a lawyer at some point, but is only eight years old right now. <laughs> um you know, we butt heads during the day and she's just been difficult. And then at night she wants cuddles. It can feel like that abusive situation where you're like, okay, well, you know, my spouse, my ex was so difficult today. Cool, mean, I cried 17 times before lunch, you know, whatever it is. And then at night they want to cuddle on the couch. Well, your mind is just, you know, that's when you kind of um, almost have that out of body experience where you just have to numb to what's happening because it's not normal. Well, with your child, you know, I'm going to hug my child and I'm going to give them a kiss to go to bed because you don't want to put regret and say, I'm putting my own trauma on them. They're not trying to hurt me. So that's kind of the reframing is like, what's the truth of the situation? The truth is they're a child. They're not my ex and they're not trying to hurt me. So it's my job to love them and also make sure that they don't become a narcissist by the way that I rate them, right? And that I keep, you know, keep them as much as I can, sweet and kind and giving and loving to everyone around them and accepting of others and all those things that matter to us, right? And, you know, when you look at it from that point of view, and, you know, you already dealt with your ex and you kind of let that go. But did you ever look at it at when you're, you when you had your kids that like, okay, my ex is really like, you know, a 10 year old, you know, like, yeah, like, did that kind of solidify like their behavior being like, okay, he was really stunted and this is the age he was. Yeah. I mean, that's something I hadn't really thought about till you just asked it because <laughs> I, um, I I don't spend much time thinking about his part of the story, if that makes sense mm -hmm. anymore. Um, but I do think that that is part of it. I think some of that religious upbringing and, you know, he had a bunch of surgeries on his feet and he always said he was traumatized from that. And But that's why all the blame shifting would happen. It was always everyone's fault, you know, everyone against him kind of mentality. The, I would say, you know, some 13-year-old boy, maybe, you know, something around some somewhere around that time is when he kind of stopped emotionally maturing, mm -hmm. right? So. And you know, you were on in January. Mm -hmm. uh, time flies, and yeah. um, feels like just yesterday. I monopolized your entire night. 
So, you know, what was the experience like after, you know, like the day after you listened um, mm-hmm. for you and did it change you in any way? And your friends listened mm-hmm. um, and that's the first time they were able to really listen from beginning to end in the condensed version that I created. Sure. Um so how was that experience as far as, you know, relating with your friends after as well? Mm-hmm. Well, and I made sure I kind of put it out there, but I said, if you would like the link, let me know. I didn't just post it because I kind of, as my own little trigger warning, right? Because some people can't handle stories like ours and that's okay. I used to, I used to be bothered by that, I think, because it's like, well, I don't like it either, <laughs> but it's my truth. That's what happened, you know, no one would be like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Let's listen to that. <laughs> But I think it's important because chances are you're going to love someone who goes through something, whether it's losing a loved one or, you know, cancer or losing a child or trauma, abuse. Something is going to happen to somebody that you love, whether it's a friend or a coworker or whatever. So I think it's important to learn about all sorts of things. And that's part of being a human and caring about other people. Um, I did not get any like negative, you know, responses. I had a couple of people reach out and say, you know, I, I have a somebody from college who I'm not really friends with, you know, just peripheral, said, I think my sister needs to listen to this. I think she's in an abusive marriage. And I that was not the only person that did that. And that's why I share. That's exactly why I share because abuse thrives in the dark. Abuse thrives in silence. And if we can stand up and say this is this is what happened and it's not okay. And here's what I learned through it. Because I always said, I wish I'd had a me when I was going through it. And I didn't, you know. Um, the people in my support group at that time uh, were fresh out too. So it wasn't, you know, obviously there was a leader and she had she had some good perspectives and things like that. Um, I was trying to downplay that at all. But, you know, it's been eight years for me and I've learned so much in that time about me, about what I should have done what I would tell someone to do now, that kind of stuff. Um, and then it just, it felt kind of empowering to listen to it. I felt like I giggled a lot, which I think I just do that. But I was like, it's not that I'm making light of what happened. It's just also, I have so much emotional distance from it mm-hmm. that it's laughably ridiculous that he would act that way to another person that he claimed to love. Like it just doesn't compute anymore of like, can't believe that was reality. It feels like it happened to someone else because I feel like someone else decided things. Um, but I didn't. I didn't notice doing it while we talked. It was just when I played it back. I was like, "I'm very giggly." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's not exactly lighthearted conversation. So it's just interesting, and I think it's. It wasn't that I was nervous either. It was just. You're a giggler. I guess. I guess so. But yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where I, I enjoyed hearing how you edited it. Um, I listened a couple of times, which might sound weird, but when you've done it and you've talked, like, I wasn't sure how it was going to play out. And I wasn't sure, you know, what you would need to cut out and what you wouldn't. And um, but yeah, it, it caused some good conversations. Um, my dad said he was proud of me, which was cool because it's not really, we laugh a lot and we tell a lot of inside jokes and than means to each other, but we don't really have that <laughs> that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. So that's always nice to get those, you know. Um, my mom cried the whole time, but she also knew a lot of it, but she didn't know 
I mean, she probably knew 10% of it. And that's the person who lived with me post all this happening. Because you just, you don't, you don't tell people the ins and outs. You don't tell people all your thoughts and what you're feeling at that time. And, you know, I remember when I left, I had people who were like, I never knew, like, you were always smiling in your pictures with him. And I'm like, yeah, because, you know, you don't take a selfie when you're locked in the closet crying or like he has my cell phone and I'm, you know, maybe now people do, but even then it was like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to share that. I didn't want it to be happening, let alone take a picture of it. You know, and I, I can see in my eyes that I wasn't really smiling. Like I had a smile on my face, but there's a lot of pain when I look back at the pictures. I don't look at them now. I deleted, you know, pretty much all of that throughout wedding albums. There's really no need for that. So yeah, I mean, it was it was a good experience. I'm glad I got to do it. And I've kind of been looking for a way to share my story. Um, I think I'll write a book at some point. I just have to like have some sort of time <laughs> to do so. Right now is not the time. So was there, was, there, was there anything that I cut out that you wish was still in there, if you remember? Um, the only thing that I noticed, and it's probably just emotional for me, is what a part my friends played. Um, but I understood, like, you had to edit out my friends, Joe and Jen, and so you had to edit them out everywhere. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, they, you know, they're the only people at my wedding. He married us. And he's passed away now and uh, he had cancer and, and they're just dear, dear friends. They were always there for me. And I dream about him. Like he pops up in my dreams. It's just the stage guy. You so, know? Yeah, so, so, so expl- I guess, you know, um, yeah. I had to, for people who are listening, sometimes if something is mentioned and mm-hmm. for people at a certain point during the show to be like, who, where did that person come from? Right. You know, the is, no, then yeah. I have to kind of get rid of their storyline the whole right. way through in, in four hours. Internal I have to like, spotless mind. So for, you know, so explain who these people are and, and I guess what they, they mean to you. Yeah. Um, them specifically. So we met them, uh, when we lived in the Bay area of California and they were like our couple friends and we stayed in touch even when we moved and got back together and they came up to visit us, you know, drove eight hours and we went down for Thanksgiving with them when I was pregnant and just, they were just really, really good friends. And then they were actually getting married two days before I left and we were supposed to go to the wedding. He was supposed to actually marry them because Joe had married us. Um, And we ended up not going because we couldn't afford it. And I felt really bad, but now at the time, I'm like, that's because I, I needed that catalyst to leave. That was the time that I had to leave. Um, but, sh- you know, she and I are very, very close still. And when Joe passed away, like, I I was floored by that just because he is just a good, amazing person. And then there's my ex, who's not a good or amazing person. And it's like, it doesn't make sense, you know. Um, but that's life. And that's death, unfortunately. And then my my college friends, who I talked about with the parenting thing, and, you know, they were a huge help to me when I left and I couldn't think. You know, I could not form thoughts, let alone a plan. I just, I just was across the country. But they went into action mode. And, I mean, they've told me through the years that that Girls Weekend, there were a million conversations that I wasn't privy to, that they would, you know, huddle up and be like, okay, so first step, where can she live? 
what can we do with baby? What, you know, like who has room, whose life can handle this? How can we get her car? How can we get her off of her lease? Like they just did all those things that, I mean, my brain was just like, I was so sleep deprived, right? I couldn't, I was taking care of my seven and a half month old baby, but I'm sort of myself, but I couldn't really do the other thing. And they just really did it for me, which takes sacrifice, love, and, you know, I felt like I lived with people who were family. And that's what I needed right then was just somebody who didn't expect me to do much at first and still loved me, you know? So that was just a gift. And then they're, they're my greatest friends. They're the reason I went to college because I sure don't use my degree, but I used my friends. So I guess before we leave today, you know, yeah. we've done the words of wisdom before, but I guess what else do you have to say to the people listening uh, of everything you've gone through and your experience? I will say, I think sometimes, especially when you're fresh out, you don't think you deserve the good things in life, but you do, you know, and it takes a while to silence their voice and you have to find your your own again, whether that's through writing or music or meditation or yoga or whatever it looks like for you to remember who you are and that that is not that person that they presented to you and said, hey, this is who you are. I know the real you. That's not true. And it's it's just reminding yourself, you know, consistently, what is the truth? What is the lie? And putting those together and going, okay. And heading, you know, realizing you deserve to have a happy life and a happy chapter after abuse, they can't take that from you. If they, you know, they say like, don't look at your past, you know, you're not going that way, but look at it enough that you can heal from it. Don't just act like it didn't happen because those things will crop up again. You'll be drawn to similar people. You have to do the work so that you can move forward and have the best life. And uh, the words, you have to do the work. I just downloaded a book called, you have to do the work. Oh, um, just <laughs> just weird. so I isn't, isn't that weird? Um, I think it's one of those things where um, a lot of people hear, you know, I have to do the work, but they there's they don't know how to do it. It's just like mm-hmm. you know, you want to do well in school, but you don't know how to study. You have to kind of learn how to study first. No matter where you're going, you, you have to do the work because if you don't do the work, you're just gonna find yourself back where you were before. Well, and it can start simple. It can start with the one foot in front of the other concept, right? You don't just get to the top of the stairs. I I know we talked about my analogy because it's just so perfect for an abusive relationship of like, they're driving you down a mountain in a car that's on fire. You have to figure out a way to get out, roll to safety, and then you have to climb all the way back up to the mountain, which is where real life is. Because they've taken you to a place that is not safe for you. But that first step is the hardest and then you have to make those other steps and then they get easier as you go because you get more confident and you figure out, oh, I am strong. I am these things. I am not what he said I was or what she said I was. And I can do this. And if I do and I get to the other side, you know, you're going to keep going. Like life is, I don't think we get to another side and we're just like, I'm here. (laughs) It's going to be a journey, but I know that I'm a better mom than I would have been in that situation, I don't think I would still be here, to be honest. And so every day is a gift that gives you that perspective that, God, you wish you could have it a different way (laughs) instead of having to go through hell to find the perspective. 
but I'm a better human because of it. I have a lot more empathy. I know that everyone I look at, wherever I am, has a story and way more than I can see. And I care to know that about them. They care to share it. So, Well, Emily, I want to thank you for being here and giving us a follow-up. I really appreciate it. Everyone appreciates it. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here today. You're welcome. And thank you once again, Emily, for being on the show. And if you want to be a guest like Emily was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please do read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form, press the Submit button. We're always looking for stories, so please do send them in. Also at our website, we have our very own safe social network. It's our support group. Top of the page is a button that says support group. Click on it and you'll see inside that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, every Thursday afternoon, and every Saturday night. We also have forum boards for you to post and for other survivors to answer you, to validate your experience and to help you along the way wherever you are. And we have ad-free episodes on there. We have bonus episodes in our support group as well. So please do join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. And at DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you've been going through. And they have every email address, every uh, phone number, every web address of every shelter and every domestic violence agency, no matter how big or small the town you are in. It is on DomesticShelters.org, so please do visit them today. And that is it for today's episode. I want to thank Emily once again. And from myself and Emily, we hope you have a good night.